Welcome to another edition of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 65, headlined by a heavyweight matchup between Derek the Black Beast Lewis and Sergey Spivak. Very fun heavyweight fight in the main event. Obviously, uh, Derek Lewis always brings the pain when he's in the cage, but Sergey Spivak, a thriving prospect at this moment in time, and he's looking to notch his biggest win on the biggest platform that he's gotten to this date in his first UFC headliner. A couple other fun fights sprinkled out throughout the card. I believe in the light heavyweight division is where the Coleman event takes place between Iwan Kutelaba and his opponent, Kennedy and Zechiku. Another interesting matchup there. Interested to see how that one plays out. A couple other fun fights sprinkled out throughout the card. We got the UFC debut of a uh, highly touted prospect, Teresa Bleda. Uh, she's going up against Natalia Silva, who had a very successful UFC debut back in June. Uh, Brady Heastan finally making his second walk to the cage after being out of the cage for over two years, or sorry, over a year at this point in time. Uh, Charles Johnson looking to you know, make good on his second walk to the cage after falling to Mohamed Makaev in his UFC debut. He goes up against Zalgas Zumagulov, who's coming off an unfortunate loss in his last matchup against Jeff Molina. So uh, fun, fun fight sprinkled out throughout the card, like I said. But first, like we always do, let's get into the betting recap of the last event and the Hot streak continues for your boy. I know I lost half a unit on the prior event, but uh, things have been very good over the last 15 events. I believe we're 12 and 3 in the last three events. But big win in this last uh, event for UFC 281. So let's start off with the losses, right? We started off the night with two losses. Didn't look like it was going to go the greatest, but then things started to turn around. So first fight of the night, we had the underdog shot on Nikolai Negumerianu, who went up against Carlos Olberg. Uh, we saw the striking advantage right away for Carlos Olberg, but I thought the durability of Negumerianu, as well as ability to keep his opponents on his heels, was going to pay off so that he can push Carlos up against the cage and get off on his shots from there in his grinding game. But Alberg was able to flatline him early in that matchup, and we saw him get the knockout. So one unit lost there. Another unit loss on the dog of the night play, which was Julio Arce. He could not get it going against Montel Jackson. He did a good job in terms of keeping the fight upright, but he very much struggled with that distance, and it was hard to crash that pocket whenever Montel Jackson was throwing his counters. So uh, Julio Arce gets dropped a couple times as well. Not the greatest performance from him, and obviously we have to rip up that ticket there. So a quick two-unit loss to start the card. However... The train just picks up after that as we sweep the rest of the card. Next up was the fight against uh, with Karolina Kavakovic going up against Savannah Gomez-Juarez. 1.1 unit at minus 107 casts for 1.03 units. Very close fight. It was a pick em fight at the beginning. We knew it was going to play out very closely. I was happy to get the bounce in that aspect. I thought it was a close fight. I thought first round Carolina, second round Juarez. And then the third round, it was pretty much Juarez up until that stumble slash knockdown that Carolina was able to nab about a minute and a half left in that fight. I think that was the ultimate difference maker. Upon rewatch, it looked more of a slip than an actual knockdown. They didn't count it as a knockdown, but I think it had a, a knockdown-type impact on the judges, which is why Carolina ended up getting her hand raised there. So good win for us there. Could have gone either way. Happy that the bounce went our way. 
another spot uh, was a violence parlay that we had uh, kicking off with Favola versus Azaitar. Fight doesn't go to decision there. I thought it was going to be Opman should that fight have finished inside the distance, but Favola shows off his tremendous finishing power and he gets his hand raised in front of his fellow statesman over there in New York. Good win for Favola, but we cast the fight doesn't go to decision. Another spot where we had the fight doesn't go to decision is the light heavyweight bout that took place on the prelims between Ryan Span and Dominic Reyes. Very unfortunate loss there for Reyes. The guy just cannot put it together. Now that's three straight losses all coming via knockout. The guy seems like he cannot take any more damage. Ryan Span more submission victories on his record than uh, KO victories. But given the durability issues of Reyes, we saw Ryan Span put that power on him and get him out of there early. So uh, 1.33 unit parlay at minus 133 cashes for one unit there. Very happy to hit on the violent spot in that fight. Next up, we had the lock of the night play. Dan Hooker, four units at minus 164 early in the week. And then I added a full other unit to make it a five-unit lock of the night play at minus 145. That cashes all in all. I think it was plus 3.11 units. Just one on Dan Hooker alone. Very happy with that. Played out how I thought it would. You know, I thought there was going to be that early submission threat from Claudio Poyas, but within 10 seconds of that fight hitting the ground and seeing how calm and collected Hooker looked, I knew he was going to be fine. I just knew for a fact that he was going to be able to get out of those positions, then go to work on the feet like he did, and ultimately he gets that finish. I believe it was in the second round, but easy peasy probably turns out to be bet of the year considering Dan Hooker probably should have been minus 400 in that spot. Happy that we were to get him at that minus 145, minus 165 range. Lock on the night play cashes as easily as I had made it sound in that how is he not a bigger favorite video that I dropped in the middle of the week last week. So hopefully most people are able to catch that and cash on that as well. The winnings keep moving on as we had three units at minus 209 on Chris Gutierrez, you know, traverse the cage very well until he ultimately set up that beautiful knee up the middle, catches Frankie Edgar, puts him out cold, gets his hand raised, sends Frankie Edgar into retirement on a three fight knockout losing streak. Not the greatest of looks. But somebody has to move forward. Shout out to Chris Gutierrez. That's plus 1.44 units. And then lastly, Coleman event, one unit at plus 100 and Zhang Wali to win inside the distance. That cashes, you know, early success from Carlos Barzo with the grappling. But it was just a matter of time before Zhang was able to reverse those spots, get that weird, you know, back slash crucifix position and then she was able to get that rear naked choke in and get the tab shortly thereafter so big event like i said plus 5.58 units for a 42 percent return on roi very happy with that performance for myself hopefully we can continue this hot hand going into ufc vegas 65 and i already have four bets on the board for it and it's only monday of fight week but Given that I'm on a th not on a three-event winning streak or longer, the picks will be free. Unfortunately, the public won't get those picks until Friday. I'm sure the lines will be moving between now and then. But the people that do have them are the ones that are on the Patreon. So shout out to the roughly 350 members that we currently have on there. Appreciate every single one of you. We got the Discord popping as well, not to mention the Best Bets and Props article, which is fully done and available for everybody. Not to mention, since there is a UFC off week next week, I'm going to jump into the UFC or Bellator 288 card this week as well. Obviously, the Patreon members will get first dibs on my breakdowns for that. But I will be looking to drop another MMA Lawcast episode for you guys later this week to cover Bellator 288. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But 
make sure you guys show your boy a little extra support by you know hitting that like hit that subscribe drop a comment but if you want to go that extra strap step five bucks a month link is in the description below for the patreon no long-term commitments if you don't like what you get after this weekend you can cancel you still get the rest of the month but then by the first you won't get charged again i promise you guys won't deactivate it anyway so check it out five bucks a month it doesn't break the bank that's what i want to do for you guys while giving you guys sound and high level advice as well all right let's not waste any further time let's get into this fight card i believe there's 13 fights in total First of which starts us off in the women's flyweight division. We got Natalia Silva coming in as the minus 170 favorite and Teresa Bleda coming in at plus 145. Now, Bleda obviously was the uh, a, a signee from this most recent season of the Dana White Contender Series, and she put on a decent enough performance, although at minus 600, you would expect a complete shellacking but she managed to keep that fight in her realm the entire time against uh, Nayara Maya. Uh, I did have a little bit of a poke on Maya that fight because I saw the grapple heavy approach from Bleda, and I thought that Maya with her grappling uh, prowess would be able to make that a little bit closer, but Bleda stopped every submission attempt and just pulverized her from on top. Big win for her there, ultimately signing her to the UFC. On the regional scene, you know, she mainly had her fights over in that Czech Republic uh, promotion called Octagon, and she fought a UFC former UFC fighter and Lucy Pudilova landed multiple takedowns in that fight. Uh, it was an exhibition matchup, which kind of made me scratch my head a little bit because that means that Bleda wasn't a full-on professional at that point in time, whereas Pudilova actually was. But the weird rule in that matchup was that every time that she landed a takedown, they stopped the fight, they got right back to the feet. And on the feet, you know, Lucy Putalova was having her way with her, uh, you know, not blowing her out by having success in the damage. But uh, Bleda still ended up winning that fight by decision. Not entirely sure how they scored the takedowns and why Bleda kept going to it, especially with that fight continuously getting stood up as soon as they hit the ground. But she managed to get her hat raised. And that is a strong part of her game is the takedown. She's able to corral her opponents into positions that she finds uh, strong for her. She gets her hands around them. She gets them to the ground. And then she does phenomenal work on top. Her striking game is definitely becoming a lot better than it was earlier in her uh, MMA career. And I think we'll see those uh, improvements on full display here. Natalia Silva came into the UFC after a roughly two and a half year layoff since she had initially got signed to the UFC. And she pulled off an upset as a plus 190 underdog against Jasmine Jazduvicious. I believe that fight took place back in June. She utilized beautiful lateral movement as well as, you know, perfect timing in terms of when to stop that movement to throw a couple big strikes and then get back on her bicycle. Jasmine could not get a beat on her at all, and we saw what happened uh, as that fight started to wear down. She she got more frustrated. She was whiffing at air a lot because of the movement of Silva, and even when the fight did hit the ground, we saw that uh, jiu-jitsu of Silva showcase itself, and she was able to get out of bad positions and get back to the feet. But I think she's going to be running into a little bit more trouble here against Bleda, who I think will do a better job in terms of corralling Silva into positions that she needs to so that she can, one, get the crisper and better strikes off. And although Silva throws with a lot of heat, she leaves herself exposed because of how well that she throws when she is on the feet. She has a Taekwondo background, so you see a lot of her offense coming from her kicks, but when she throws her hands, that's where she leaves herself susceptible to be countered. And I think that Bleda, 
who has shown a solid striking improvements, shows that she can throw that one-two down the middle and potentially counter effectively here. But I think she'll be able to get her best work done when she's able to get this fight to the mat. A little bit of concern considering how active Silva is off of her back, but considering that we're getting underdog money here on that highly touted prospect in Teresa Bleda, I think it's a good spot to take a shot on her, right? Usually we see that market overcorrection whenever there's an underdog that wins. In their next fight, they're more than likely the favorite, but I think that people start to overblow their expectations because of what they saw in the previous fight. So let's take recency bias into our uh, benefit here and take Teresa Bleda, who has a very solid skill set and the skill set required to beat a girl like Natalia Silva. So starting off the card, I'm going to be going with the underdog here in Teresa Bleda to grind this fight out, keep Natalia Silva static for the most part, and then do her best work when she's able to get off her damage in the striking room as well when she's able to get this fight to the ground. Stay safe in those submission opportunities from Natalia Silva. Pass the guard, get into half guard, controller, land damage from on top, and win this fight via decision. So Teresa Bleda is my pick to kick off the card here to pull off the upset and take on home that victory. Next up, we go to the men's bantamweight division, and we got Fernie Garcia coming in as a plus-135 underdog in his second trip to the Octagon. He takes on Brady Heastand, who's coming in at minus-155, and he'll be coming into this uh, second fight in the UFC cage as well. Very fun fight here between a solid boxer in Fernie Garcia who showcases solid boxing combinations, good hand speed, and decent enough uh, footwork as well to help him fuel that striking onslaught that he usually puts on his opponents. Brady, he stands more of a grappler, but we will see improvements from his striking game considering the, considering the interesting thing that I found out about him while researching this matchup. Apparently, he blew out his ACL uh, the first week that he was on The Ultimate Fighter, kept it a secret, and managed to get to the finale of The Ultimate Fighter, where he still had a torn ACL. He had a very spirited effort against Ricky Tercios that night, came up on, on the losing end in a split decision loss. Very close fight, could have gone either way, but it was very much impressive that he was able to get that far on a torn ACL. Now here he is about 12 to 13 months after that surgery and after that uh, last fight that he had. And I think we're going to see a much better version of him. He'll be, uh, I believe he's 23 years old. Uh, he's had a tremendous amount of experience against legitimate competition on the regional scene up until this point. And I think that's going to help him out in a matchup here against Fernie Garcia, where he might get outstruck on the feet, but I think he can stay competitive, competitive enough until he can get his grappling going. He has over 10 plus years of experience on the wrestling mats and you see that fully on display when he steps inside the cage. It's very hard to deal with because he's a strong grappler. He knows how to utilize his jiu-jitsu behind that and I think that's ultimately why he's going to get his hand raised in the spot. He trains out of the sick jitsu camp which is mainly known for fighters like Michael Chiesa, Juliana Pena, Sam Cecilia and a couple other guys. I believe Terrence McKenney spent time over there as well. But a lot of that camp, even from the names that I said for, uh, to you guys outside of Sam Cecilia, a lot of those based around wrestling and jujitsu. And you can see exactly that type of archetype of fighter in Brady Heastand when you see him compete. So I think we'll see him land the takedowns here, right? Fernie, not a bad grappler in his own right, but I think he's going to get out grappled here. And knowing that Brady is going to be at 100%, knowing that he's fully recovered from that knee injury, he should be able to put some uh, solid work together here and grind this fight out over 15 minutes. So I, I do lean Brady here. My slight concern is, like, if there is that little bit of overconfidence since returning from that knee injury, maybe that we're 
seeing, uh, you know, maybe it might not allow him to fight at his best ability, especially when he's dealing with that, you know, hand speed and combination striking of Fernie Garcia. But should he come even 80% close to what he used to be, I think he absolutely styles on uh, Fernie Garcia here and outworks him and then outgrinds him and wins this fight via decision. So give me Brady uh, as the favorite in the second fight of the night. Third fight of the night brings us to the women's strawweight division. This fight is a very closely lined fight. We got Maria Oliveira coming in at minus 120. And then on the return here for Vanessa Demopoulos, we got plus 100. Clear striker versus grappler matchup here as Maria Oliveira likes to use her size and her length to stay on the outside and pitter powder her opponents, similar to what she did against her last opponent in Gloria De Paula. Now, she did land a couple of takedowns in that matchup where she was able to showcase her, her top game, but she does her best work when she's able to stay mobile and utilize her combination striking from the outside. We saw her, you know, have some decent success against Tabitha Ricci, but when Ricci was able to get the fight to the ground, Oliveira very much struggled to get back to her feet unless she had the help of the cage. And I'm not saying she grabbed onto the cage, but she used it to push off and work her way back to her feet. But it was just a matter of time before Tabitha Ricci was able to get the fight to the ground. Vanessa Demopoulos is a very strong, compact fighter who utilizes her grappling to her advantage when she can. She will likely be outstruck on the feet here, but I'm trusting that her and her coaches over there at Fight Ready MMA know what her path to victory is here. Get this fight to the ground. And she showcased solid strength and, and clinch work against a, a strong fighter in Jinyu Fry in her last fight. And even though a lot of people scored that fight for Fry, we saw some good things from Vanessa in that fight to keep it close and to keep it very competitive, just as I think she'll be able to do it here against Oliveira. I don't think Oliveira has big power in her feet uh, or in her strikes that will cause Vanessa Demopoulos to be timid from the outside. I think we'll see her cross the pocket, push Maria Oliveira up against the cage, eventually drag this fight to the ground, and I think it's just a matter of time before she eventually finds a submission victory. Now, I get it. People are thinking, you know, if Tabitha couldn't submit her, why will uh, Vanessa be able to? I think Vanessa will see a little bit more of an offensive-minded game from her. Tabitha was fine to just stay in that full guard and just do damage from there, whereas Vanessa does a good job in terms of passing guard, getting to some good positions, and looking for submission finishes. Even when she is on her back, she's very active with her guard, just as we saw when she got knocked down by Silvana Gomez-Juarez, and she still pulled off a armbar victory in that matchup. She's very flexible. She has a lot of dexterity in her hips and her legs. And I think that's going to allow her to get those uh, submission opportunities once this fight does hit the ground. So I do like Vanessa Demopoulos, right? That's two women's MMA underdogs that I'm taking here because I see the value in them. I see the advantages that they have. I normally go with the grapple heavy fighters, which is what I'm doing in these two matchups. I do think that we'll see Demopoulos get those positions when she needs it. And I think a submission opportunity will eventually find itself here Hopefully, she can get this fight to the ground. And even if she doesn't, that cage push that she has, then she can land damage from there. That should allow her to get up on points as well should this fight go the full 15 minutes. She just cannot allow Maria Oliveira to dance on the outside and just pitter-patter her. Seeing what I've seen from Vanessa and knowing her coaches the way that I do, I feel like we'll see a solid enough game plan from her to allow her to utilize her grappling to the best of its ability so that she can get either get the finish or get a hand raise regardless. I'm going Demopolis, Demopolis via submission. All right, next up, we got the men's bantamweight division back on display here uh, between Ricky Tercios coming in at minus 150. He's going up against Kevin Natividad, who's coming in at plus 130. Now, fun fight here again. Ricky Tercios always, you know, throws a lot of output. 
especially in his last fight, through over 230 significant strikes, only landed 11% of them, though. Eamon Zahabi obviously ended up getting his hand raised that night as he was way more effective with the lesser strikes that he landed, but still managed to get his hand raised. Uh, but Ricky Tercios, always active, all action, right? Even if it's empty volume, he's always throwing something and remaining active. Uh, in his fight against Brady Heastand, he showcased, you know, even if you take this guy to the ground, he does a good job in terms of staying active, whether it's throwing elbows or punches off of his back, uh, disrupting the balance of his opponent so that his opponent can't posture up and get any damage off, or pushing on the hips and getting back to his feet. He does a very good job in terms of staying proactive in that in that sphere. And then on the feet, all action, all the time, always throwing output. You just never know if you're going to get, you know, empty output or if he's actually going to be landing on his opponents. Kevin Natividad, if you only watched his last couple fights in the UFC, you'd expect this guy mainly to be a, a, a striker because that's mainly what he did. But if you look earlier on in his career, the guy likes to go out there and grapple. He has solid wrestling, good uh, takedowns, and can uh, do a very good job in terms of you know getting his opponents into uncomfortable positions. I'm not the most sold on his ability to control his opponents as I wasn't really impressed with what I saw in the regional scene, but... That just goes to show that this could make Tercios uh, a solid spot in terms of working his way back to his feet should he get taken down and then from there being more active in the striking. Natividad with his striking seems a little bit more, you know, I don't want to say dis more disciplined, but like a little bit too patient at times. You know, he has big power in his hands. Uh, obviously, he's been able to get a couple of knockout victories on his record, but I think he's going to struggle with that movement and that output and that uncomfortable feeling that Ricky Tercios is going to put him here. So, again, Tercios, always tough to back as a, a favorite uh, at minus 150 even because you don't know how effective he'll, he'll actually be with his output. And that's where, uh, you know, I'll likely end up staying off of this fight in terms of money line perspective. Minus 150, I'm going to go to Ricky Tercios. But as of recording this, well, we still don't have the totals. And I'd be interested to see what the over two and a half looks like. I'd expect it to be chalky, right? I'd, ex I'd expect it to be around minus 250, minus 300. But given that Natividad's last two fights have finished inside the distance, sometimes that influences the betting line. So if we can get minus 150, minus 160 on the over two and a half in this matchup, I think that line is a steal. You know, both guys are solid with their durability. Obviously, uh, Kevin Natividad uh, got put up by Danabat Carrillo and, and Miles Johns in his last two fights. But I don't think that Ricky Tercios hits with that type of impact to cause this fight to finish inside the distance. And let's not forget, the Miles Johns fight, he grabbed, Miles grabbed that glove and, you know, uh, kind of brought him or pulled him into that big knockout punch that he eventually landed. So um, a little bit of, uh, slyness there from Oz Johns to get that knockout victory. But I am going to go uh, Ricky Tercios here. I think he all works. Kevin and Tivy Dad stays on his feet and then just puts too much volume on him to, for him to keep up. So I'm going to go Tercios and Tercios for your decision. No bet there though. Speaking of the aforementioned Miles Johns, he's going to be stepping into the cage as well in the bantamweight division in the next fight. He comes in as a minus 145 favorite against Vince Morales, who comes in at plus 125. Now, Vince was originally scheduled to fight Jose Johnson, who's a stylistically different approach, right? Jose uses his output and his length and his striking very well to keep opponents thinking, but Vince Morales is going to be the one that has a technical striking advantage in this matchup now with his new opponent. Miles Johns, a Fortis MMA product, and seemed to be a solid prospect when he first came into the UFC, but you see that his lack of, you know, legit striking skills kind of hinder him because 
grappling seems to be his his strong suit, but it really isn't coming to fruition in the UFC thus far. He struggles to get opponents down and struggles to keep them down. And if opponents are able to work back to their feet and showcase their superior striking, that's where you see John start to struggle a little bit, right? Natividad even had some success in the striking realm against him. It's just that John utilizes that range and his speed decently and his footwork. That's where some fighters see some trouble but vince uh, you know i think he is the better striker here i think he'll be at a slight speed disadvantage but as long as this fight starts to drag on and on i think we'll see him be a little bit more successful with the combinations that he starts to land uh if he can keep this fight upright which i'm still not 100 sold on that he can uh he'll likely be the one beating miles johns to the punch and landing more strikes making it look better for the judges I've never really been a big Vince Morales fan. Obviously, you guys know that I had a, a lock of the night play against him in his last fight when he went up against Jonathan Martinez. But this is a far different opponent compared to, you know, Jonathan Martinez. Miles Johns does not throw in the combinations nor utilize his range as well as a, a guy like Jonathan Martinez. So I, I'm going to go Vince Morales here. I think he outstrikes Miles Johns, keep this fight on the feet. I just don't have enough confidence in him to actually put my hard-earned money onto Vince Morales in the spot. So I'll go Vince, Vince via decision. Maybe the over two and a half is another solid spot on here if it's around that minus 150 range, but I'm going to take Morales to win this fight via decision. All right, next up, this fight takes us to the women's flyweight division. We got Jennifer Maya coming in as a plus 150 underdog and minus 175 the return on Marina Moreau. Now, my, my struggles here in terms of wanting to take the underdog shot on Jennifer Maya come from the the grapple-heavy approach that Marina Morose has been taking in her last couple fights. You know, uh, there is a little bit of recency bias, in my opinion, coming in on this line, which is why it's minus 175 for Morose. But I really can't get to the betting window for Jennifer Maya, knowing that Morose will likely be taking a grapple-heavy approach. From on top, she seems to have good enough submission defense to ward off, I believe, that black belt from Jiu-Jitsu and Jennifer Maya, um, but I, I just love the tenacity that we see from Morose, uh, you know, in her past several fights to get the fights to the ground and grind her opponents down from on top. Uh, on the feet, Morose does enough to stay competitive, but I think that Maya might have the technical advantages there. But I just see that Morose will more often than not shoot for the legs, look to get this to the ground, and that might ultimately be the deciding factor in this matchup. I want to bet Jennifer Maya, honestly, because I think that this fight should be closer to 50-50. But it's just, you know, let's see how Morose does against the step up in competition here uh, against Maya. And if she can continue to go out there and utilize that grapple-heavy approach. Her, her, her cardio doesn't look the best. Obviously, it seems like in the third round, it really starts to fall off. But she does more than enough in the first two rounds to get the judges to score those rounds for her and eventually get her hand raised by decision should she not get the finish. Jennifer Amaya, not super deadly in that third round, so I don't think we have to worry about too much should Moreau start to slow down in that last frame. But again, at minus 175, I can't bet on somebody who has that narrow path to victory. And if they can't get it off, Jennifer Amaya likely beats her to the punch in the striking realm and likely takes it on the scorecards should it play out that way. But the pick is going to be Moreau's. I think if she keeps up with that grapple-heavy approach, it will pay off for her only to a certain level. Is Jennifer Amaya that level? We'll find out this weekend, but I'm not going to put my money on the line to find out either way. All right, next up, we go to the flyweight division here for the men's. We're going to be talking about Charles Johnson, who comes in at minus 155, and Zalgas Zhumagulov, who comes in at plus 135. Now, the last time we saw Zalgas in the cage, he lost a 
kind of a controversial decision to Jeff Molina, who is a similarly, you know, type of fighter to Charles Johnson and the fact that he likes to utilize his hands, likes to utilize combinations and striking. And I think ultimately the judges saw the damage that he was landing compared to the damage slash control that Zalgas was getting. Now Zalgas showcased, you know, a, a, a spirited effort in terms of getting that fight into the clinch realm where he could utilize his superior power, look for takedowns, which he wasn't really able to get often, and then just try to control that fight. And then when they're out at distance, utilize big strikes to try to, you know, convince the judges that he's landing uh, damaging blows, even if it's landing on the guard of his opponent. Uh, you know, he came out like a man on fire against Manal Cap early in that matchup. He paid for his troubles, ended up getting finished there. Charles Johnson, you know, came to the UFC as the LFA flyweight champion. Uh, he had a, a tremendous fight against Carlos Mota in his last LFA fight, where he ended up finishing him in the fifth round of that matchup. Back and forth matchup, but it was a speed and a striking advantage, which ultimately got him on top and got him that finish. Against Mohamed Mokayev in his UFC debut, he came in as a big underdog. As a lot of people expected that Mokayev was going to get him to the ground immediately and look for that submission and get that finish. But Charles showed great takedown defense, kept that fight on the feet. And then whenever they were at distance, he landed good enough shots. But Mokayev was relentless that night and kept getting into those positions that he needed. Charles Johnson could get no offense off, unfortunately, for him that night. Here, though, I think we'll see Johnson showcase that takedown defense once again, as I believe Zumu Golov will look to get this fight to the ground. But I think more often than not, we'll see Charles at range doing what he does best. Output, strikes, speed, kicks. I think it's going to be a little bit too much for Zalgas here. Zalgas is a decent striker in his own right, but I think he's going to struggle with the size and reach disadvantage he'll be at in this fight. And not to mention, like I said, the, the, the speed is going to be too much here. Charles is so quick with his combinations and his kicks and his punches that I think it's going to be hard for Zalgas to get a to get a beat on it. So I don't mind Charles around that minus 155 range. I think he'll keep this fight upright. I think he'll keep it in his realm. I think he'll outstrike Zalgas here and take home a decision victory. I really like him in this spot. Like, you know, I, I'm not going lock of the night deep on him here by any means because I still want to see him go up against this level of competition before I have, you know, even higher expectations and confidence in him but this seems like a stylistic matchup where he should be able to style on Zalgas on the feet ultimately winning that fight via decision by output and volume alone so let's go Charles Johnson Johnson by decision not a good not a bad spot at minus 155 either all right next up we got Jack Della Maddalena making his return to the cage here in the welterweight division at minus 450 he's going up against Danny Hot Chocolate Roberts who's coming in at plus 360 now Danny Roberts coming off that unfortunate loss to 40-year-old Francisco Trinaldo. You know, Danny Roberts, the much better disciplined fighter and good combinations compared to Trinaldo, but he could not get out of the way of the big shots, ultimately getting hurt on numerous occasions. Good for him and his durability, the fact that he didn't get finished, but it just was not a good look that anytime that Trinaldo landed on him, it seemed to hurt uh, Roberts in that matchup. Now, Jack, very good combination striker of his own. I do think that these guards are a little bit closer in terms of skill level, in terms of the, the striking than the odds indicate, but I think it's just the durability issues that J Danny Roberts has that's going to cause him issues time and time again. And that's why I think we'll see Jack touch him up, eventually find that knockout probably first or second round. I'll be interested to see what the fight doesn't go to decision odds look like, as I think that they'll roughly be around what Jack Della Maddalena's money line is at. 
And, you know, just to be on the safe side, it might be smarter to parlay the fighters and go to decision rather than that Jack minus 450. Because if Jack wins, more than likely it comes inside the distance, right? You can even take Jack inside the distance whenever that line drops. But, uh, you know, Danny Roberts could throw a wrench in that plan. So he has decent enough power in his hands and his kicks that if he catches Jack, it could be night-night for Jack as well. So, you know, I, I like Jack here. I think he wins. I think he's parlayable, but I want to try to find a better way to approach it, whether it's the inside the distance on Jack straight up or the fight doesn't go to decision overall. Jack has great combination striking. He's very fluid, has big power in his hands, has good kicks as well. But Danny can, you know, strike with him too. It's just his durability that we have to worry about. So Jack, Jack inside the distance. I completely understand why you're going to parlay him. Go for it, but look for the fight doesn't go to decision if you can get a similarly lined spot. All right, let's get to this next matchup, which takes us to the middleweight division. It's between Cody Brundage, who comes in at plus 155, and Rodolfo Vieira, who comes in at minus 180. Now, Cody Brundage, big win in his last matchup where he knocked out Trishan Gore with the, uh, I think it was a lead right hand, but it didn't look good for him initially. I'll give him that, right? Like, he was going for takedowns relentlessly against uh, Trishan Gore, could not get it off. And then on the feet, he started backing up. It looked like he was taking some big deep breaths. And maybe the overconfidence of Trishan Gore allowed him to get that win uh, because it seemed like Trishan just kept marching him down and throwing naked leg kicks. Eventually, we saw Cody Brennage counter him, get him uh, out of there, and knock him out. So good win for Cody there. But Cody at his best, he can utilize his grappling, right? He gets guys to the ground, grinds them out from on top, that's how he normally gets his wins. But we've seen him out grappled, right? Nick Maximoff had, I don't want to say had his way with him, but had tremendous success controlling him, getting him to the mat, and getting his uh, hand raised via decision in uh, Cody Brundage's first UFC fight. Now he's going up against uh, a, a more aggressive grappler in Rodolfo Vera, who's going to be looking to choke out Cody should he get those positions. Uh, you know, Vieira's striking game likely at a disadvantage here against Brundage, but he does a good job in terms of sticking to the meat and potatoes. We saw in his fight against Dustin Stolzfus where he just used the one-two down the middle for the full five minutes of the first round. And then as soon as that second round started, that's where he started to get to his grappling. It seemed like he wanted to portion out his gas tank a little bit better considering that he blew it in the fight prior and got submitted by Anthony Fluffy Hernandez. Now, I, I you know, I, I think that we'll see him go for the takedowns early in the spot. I think we'll see him, you know, actually, maybe not early. Like, he'll probably strike a little bit, wait for that takedown opportunity. And once it comes... He will get the fight to the mat. And then from there, I think it's soon thereafter that he'll eventually be able to find a submission. Cody is strong, but I think he'll eventually break under this pressure from Vieira. And then I think Vieira will get that submission victory probably second round. You know, Vera, Vera, a little bit of a gas bag in his own right, but I think that he'll get those positions early enough in this matchup where he can eventually lock up that submission. Minus 180, though, it's hard for me to get on board with somebody with, you know, uh, gas tank issues at chalk like that. Uh, I'd be interested to see what his inside the distance number looks like because I might be a little bit more keen to take that shot. But I think he's a strong enough wrestler here to get Cody Brunish to the ground. And then from there, I think his jiu-jitsu will help him up enough to eventually lock up that, I'm going to call it a rear naked choke. I think he'll eventually get the back of Brandich here and sink in that choke and get that finish. So let's go Rodolfo Vieira to get a submission victory here. All right, next up, we got Muslim Salikov coming in at minus 115 in this welterweight matchup, going up against Andre Fialio, who comes in at minus 105. Now, the last time we saw Fialio inside the cage, I believe it was UFC 275, where he came up short against 
uh, why is his name escaping me right now? Uh, I had big money on him because he was my lock of the night play as an underdog that night. Um, why? Oh, Jake Matthews. Well, I don't know. I just had a big brain fart there. I apologize, guys. But uh, I had Jake Matthews as my lock of the night play that night because it was absolutely disrespectful that Andre Fiello comes off of uh, you know a knockout victory over Cameron Van Camp, and now he's a solid favorite over a, a tested UFC veteran who has a solid skill set. Absolutely insane to me. Jake Matthews beat him to the punch the entire night. Eventually knocked him out. Big win. Gave us the shoulder shrug, right? The the most one of the more uh, iconic moments of this of this year. Uh, that cold shoulder shrug was just amazing from uh, Jake Matthews. But you know, Andre Fiallo is slowly getting exposed as a as a power puncher. That's really about it, right? Yeah, he couldn't catch Michelle Pereira. Obviously, he caught Cameron Van Camp. Good win from there. But like the harder and deeper that you study on Andre Fialio, you see that like if he can't get that knockout, it's going to be hard for him to get his win, right? Against Miguel Baeza, he was getting outstruck until he finally started to land that big strike and then eventually got Miguel Baeza out of there. Muslim Salikov, better striker, but getting up there in age and his durability might be taking a little bit of a hit. We saw him do decently in terms of staying away from the big power of Li Jingliang early, but it was just a matter of time before Li was able to find that big that chin and get that knockout victory. Fialio doesn't have the advantage of having a cardio uh, game like like Li Jingliang has. He starts to slow down as fights start to go on. So yes, there is early danger for Muslim Salikov, but if he can stay safe and use his uh, kicks and his punches and his movement to stay out of the way of those big punches of Fialio. I think he starts to run away with this later on in this matchup. I could see him going for takedowns to try to slow down Fialio earlier than he normally would should he just treat it as a kickboxing matchup. So I do like Salikov in this spot. I haven't bet him yet, but it seems like the money is coming in on Fialio, and I'm going to let this fight week continue to go on because we might get plus money and underdog money on Muslim Salikov. And at that point, I think it's smart enough to take the shot on Salikov, right? Fialio has big power, but it doesn't translate later on into fights. That's where I think he's going to run into trouble. So, yes, there is that early danger of Fialio. And maybe you could even bet Fialio round one as a head spot if you want. But I think that the longer that this fight goes, Salikov will start to take over. And I think that his punches and his combinations are going to be too much for Fialio here. So I'm going to go Salikov. I will likely bet him should the should he become an underdog here. Um, but age and and early speed disadvantage is my big concern here. He could absolutely get starched early here. But... Um, just just, just trust that in the long term, in these types of matchups, you'll likely be up, especially if you're getting underdog odds on the better overall fighter here, who, in my opinion, is Muslim Salikov. So let's go Salikov and Salikov by decision. Next up, we got a heavyweight fight on tap here as Chase Sherman uh, was scheduled to fight Josh Parisian a couple of weeks ago. Unfortunately, on fight day, Parisian has to pull out and they pull in Waldez, uh, sorry, Waldo Cortez Acosta um uh to to step in here uh you know i believe he fought on october 29th now here he is two to three weeks later stepping in to fight chase sherman he went all three rounds against jared vandera where he used a superior striking and leg kicks and damage to outwork jared vandera and he could even land a couple of takedowns so that he could secure, secure that win here against chase sherman you could do the same thing right Obviously, he has to worry about the big power of Chase Sherman early, but I think that Waldo does a good job in terms of moving about the cage, staying at a safe enough distance, and utilizing a full MMA game to get his hand raised. When you look at his earlier fights, even before coming on to the Contender Series, you see him using takedowns and using a full MMA game, which is not something you usually see from a heavyweight. 
you see them either just grapple or just strike to try to knock out their opponents. But Waldo does a good job in terms of incorporating both parts of the MMA game so that he can get his hand raised. And I think that this is a spot where he can absolutely do that. I think we'll see him strike with Chase Sherman for a little bit and then eventually look this look to get this fight to the ground where he can grind him out from on top. Chase at times seems a little bit helpless from his back, um, which is why I like Waldo in the spot. So I'm going to be going Waldo. I think Waldo grinds him out over 15 minutes and wins this decision. Uh, but, you know, I'm still waiting for the line to be widely available. At minus 175, I'm in. I'll go two units on him there, uh, but I'm just waiting for this line to open up some more before I get my action down on it so that you guys can actually uh, actually tail it, right? I'm not one of, like one of these guys that just puts out plays that other guys can't tail. I like sticking with money lines. I like sticking with the over-unders. Every so often, I'll throw in that inside the distance or another funky parlays piece, but for the most part, I want these plays to be tailable, and I'm waiting for Waldo to become tailable on more sports books before I drop him as a pick, but Waldo is the play inside the distance all right that brings us to our co-main event of the night which takes place in the light heavyweight division we got iwan kutilaba coming in at plus 145 minus 170 the return on uh kennedy and zechuku uh interesting fight here uh it seems that iwan kutilaba whenever he fights a fighter of the frame of kennedy and zechuku he more than uh, more often than not comes out on the short end of the stick right ryan span able to get him out of there. Uh, there was another big opponent that, uh, uh, Johnny Walker, another guy that he couldn't get out of there. Um, but Kutilaba, you know, when he is on, uh, he can showcase that fight like he had against Devin Clark, where he's able to land takedowns, able to outwork him in those spots and just stay grinding on him. Kennedy in Zachiko is a guy that can succumb to that type of game, right? We saw Nikolai Negamariano beat him with a similar type of game. And I think that Kutilaba is a better wrestler than, uh, uh, than Nego Mariano. Kennedy and Zachuku, if he can catch that neck of Iwan because Iwan gets a little bit desperate at times and leaves and leaves his necks out of there, leaves his neck out of there, similar to what uh, Ryan Spatton was able to snatch up. Yes, the danger is there. But if Kutilaba can land those takedowns and continue to grind on him, I don't know if Kennedy will be safe enough or, or confident enough that he can march back from an early deficit. He will likely have the striking advantage, but he just does not do a good enough job, in my opinion, in terms of establishing that range. I think he's going to struggle to keep Kutalaba off of him. And I think that Kutalaba will land takedowns time and time again to get the win here. I just, I need to see Kutalaba beat this frame of a fighter first before I go out there and trust him to do it, right? Like I said uh, earlier, Ryan Spann uh, caught that neck. Johnny Walker able to get the finish as well via submission. Kennedy, Similar frame, he could possibly find a submission too, but I just don't have the confidence in him yet as I still believe that he gets a buy on a lot of his physical attributes rather than his actual skill set attributes. So uh, yeah, I'll go Kutilaba. Kutilaba by decision here. I just can't get to the betting window as of yet. All right, we're about to break down the main event of the evening, but I always like to take this time to remind you guys to hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. Drop a comment below. Let me know what you're thinking for this card. Let me know if you have a lock of the night for the card and what it could potentially be. And otherwise, if you want to take a step further and support your boy even more so that I can continue to do this thing on a full-time basis for you guys, drop endless amounts of content for you guys to be more than prepared for every single UFC event coming up. The best way to do that is check out the Patreon. Five bucks a month. Link in the description below. No long-term commitments. You don't like what you get, you can cancel right away. You get the rest of the month for free still, or not for the five bucks that you already paid, uh, but you won't get charged on the first again unless you unsubscribe. So 
appreciate all the 350 members that we currently have on there right now. Hope to get that number back up to 400 as well. But uh, there's a reason the vast majority of people stay with your boy because they love what I bring to the table. All right. Main event here, we got minus 195 on Sergey Spivak in his first ever UFC main event. He's going up against Derek Lewis, who comes in at plus 165. Now, Derek Lewis on a little bit of a slump, right? Got knocked out by Tai Tuivasa and uh, Sergey Pavlovich in his last couple fights. So, as it would be whenever Derek Lewis goes on a little bit of a skid, he ends up being the underdog in his next fight. Sergey Spivak on a little bit of a run, right? Uses his takedowns effectively and does good work from on top against his opponents. That's what he needs to do here against Derek Lewis. But we've seen even the best grappler in the heavyweight division succumb to the big power of Derek Lewis. Curtis Blades, right? Curtis struck with him for the first round and probably should have stayed striking with him because in the second round, it seemed like he forced a shot out of himself, which eventually forced him right into that beautiful uppercut of Derek Lewis and put the lights out of Curtis Blades. Derek Lewis will always have that knockout ability, and he will always be at a skill disadvantage no matter who he goes up against. But it's that fight-ending power that is so hard for a lot of fighters to, to keep up with, right? Sergey, uh, he might have early ex- success here. And, you know, logical thinking would make you believe that if he has early success, he will likely have late success. But he might get a little bit sloppy the later that this fight goes, right? If, if First ever five-round fight, it's going to be hard to take down Derek Lewis time and time again while trying to avoid that big power that he brings to the table. But once he gets the fight to the ground, I have no doubt that he'll be able to keep that top position. He could even get that big, you know, full mount and he could possibly get some uh, shots off from there. But Derek Lewis has proven to be hard to keep down uh, no matter your skill level. I I want to side with Sergey Spivak here because again he's always uh or sorry Derek Lewis is always going to be at a skill disadvantage but I just feel at a certain point that Derek is going to land that big shot here on Spivak Spivak's not going to like it he's going to turtle up and we'll get another Derek Lewis knockout victory I'm just not confident enough to bet on it so I'm going to go Derek Lewis Derek Lewis by knockout in this spot but like I do not at all uh encourage going all in on Derek Lewis in this spot Sergey Spivak is the much more talented fighter here. He has way more paths to victory. And should he get those takedowns early and often, he should be able to cruise and he might be able to find a finish. So I'll be looking at maybe the under three and a half as an alternate total, maybe the under two and a half as well. But uh, as a straight up pick, I'm going to go Derek Lewis and Derek Lewis by knockout for no fact other than that power will never go away. And we've seen Spivak cracked in the past and fault that to that uh, to that power. Derek Lewis, that heavyweight knockout gauntlet, he's still at the top. One of the top guys, Francis Ngannou and him, one of the hardest hitters in the division. Can Spivak get past it? We'll find out. I personally don't think so. I'm going to go Lewis, Lewis by knockout. Just no money on it myself. All right, that is a wrap on the breakdowns. Appreciate everybody checking out the show as always. I hope you guys are happy with the fact that I'm dropping these every Monday now, and I hope to stick to that schedule. As I said earlier in the podcast as well, look out for the Bellator 288 MMA Lockcast episode, which I'll be dropping in the next couple of days. Research has begun on that. I like There's one spot that I like in particular that I'll likely uh, make a big play on, but uh, a lot of question marks as I don't know a lot of the opponents that these guys are facing, but I'll be doing that research very, very shortly. So make sure you guys tune in for that. Um, 
Bellator breakdowns won't be a regular thing, but it's mainly because there's no UFC event next week. So I might as well just take my time to research the Bellator fights upcoming for you guys. Appreciate all the love and support. I always hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. If you want to take that extra step, hit up the Patreon five bucks a month. Love you guys if you guys do that. Love you even if you don't. Just hit that like and subscribe and drop a comment. That's the least I ask. I promise. That's the least I ask. All right. I love every single one of you guys. We'll uh, see you back on Thursday for propping you up with Cody over on the All-Star Friday Ultimate Wayne Show. Still lining up my guests for that. And then it's an early card this week, 1 p.m. Eastern start time for the prelims. So the Fight Day live chat will likely go down at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. Eastern on Saturday. I'll let you guys know for sure on Friday what time it's going to go down. Love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Good luck on your best this week. Peace out.